We do quite a bit of talking about science on this program. In a world where political news rarely provides uplifting data, we count on the scientific realm for a lot of good cheer. Unfortunately, science too has its lapses, and our guest today has written about a few of them. Simon LeVay is a neuroscientist who's been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and the Salk Institute. Dr. LeVay has written for both Scientific American and New Scientist, as well as the Los Angeles Times Magazine. His prior books cover an array of topics, including human sexuality, geology, and the search for extraterrestrial life. His most recent book, When Science Goes Wrong, 12 Tales from the Dark Side of Discovery, is currently out. And discuss this new work, he now joins us from his home in West Hollywood. Simon LeVay, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hi, thank you very much. Very pleased to be on your show. I'd like to start by noting your book is not, is not in any way anti-science, but more an explanation of how ethical lapses, ill-advised efforts, and fraud pops up in science as it does elsewhere. That's right. I'm a scientist myself, and I believe strongly that science offers tremendous benefits to humanity and will continue to do so. So this is not an attack on science. It's more um, a, a look at the different ways that science can go wrong uh, with a view... Uh, First of all, to entertaining people, because these are rather entertaining stories, I think, but also uh, to help people understand that they need to keep an eye on science, if you like, that um, you know, scientists are human and they make mistakes. Indeed. Let's, uh, let's start with a very topical uh, case. NASA is hoping to put down a lander on Mars this, this Sunday, the 25th, and uh, they've had a few problems in recent years with their Martian missions going haywire. Can we talk about some of those episodes? Well, the one I write about in the book uh, happened in 1999. This was the Mars Climate Orbiter that was intended to go into orbit around Mars. Uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the engineers who was pre preparing the navigation software for this uh, spacecraft confused the scientific units that were being used. He used what are called imperial units, which are pounds of force uh, for the rockets that were uh, moving the um, spacecraft around, and uh, instead of metric units, which are called dynes. And uh, as a result, the, uh, the, the programming for the navigation software was incorrect, and the spacecraft went off target, and it actually hit Mars and was destroyed rather than going into, into orbit. So there were, this was an unmanned craft, of course, so no one was killed in this, but it was still it was um, you know, about $200 million, I believe, that went down the drain because of that simple scientific error. That is really that failure to correct English units to metric. That's really an all-time science goof. Well, yeah. In fact, it happens all the time. I mean, uh, sometimes with tragic results. For example, in medical research, there have been cases where um, patients have been given the wrong doses of drugs because the drug has been measured in, in, in the wrong units. So it, it's a very common kind of mistake. And there have been similar dumb mistakes in many uh, um, of uh, NASA's um, missions actually there have been uh, like a decimal point has been misplaced for example causing one uh, mission to, to uh, fail um, but of course these are very complex enterprises they're, they're really problems in systems engineering that is getting a whole very long sequence of technological um, processes all chained together in, in a successful way and not a single one going wrong and that's an organizational problem rather than a, you know, a scientific problem, if you like. Well, Dr. LeVay, I certainly hope they can do better with this Phoenix lander uh, later this month. But back in 99, I was down in Pasadena when they were trying to put the polar lander down. You mentioned that one, too. And yes. it, it struck me that uh, when, they, when it happened... 
there was a failure, and people knew right away that uh, that there was a problem. And, and someone actually mentioned what, what you mentioned in the book. There was a motto in NASA at the time: "Faster, better, cheaper." One engineer quoted that and said, "Faster, better, cheaper. Pick two." <laughs> yes, this this was the the philosophy um, back then, which was to try and do stuff on the cheap at, at NASA, and it didn't work very well. Quite a few missions actually were lost. Uh, because uh, you basically need a quite a bit of money to um, to have these systems of checks and balances in place to make sure that not one single mistake occurs in, in a very complex sequence of operations. Yeah, and I, I want to know, too, that your portrayal of how NASA spun that failure was just absolutely accurate. I watched that unfold for several days. Well, th there was, of course, they don't like to say right off, you know, it looks like this is a failure. They try to stay upbeat, and mm -hmm. so that the public doesn't really find out how bad the situation is until <laughs> sometimes quite a few days after the spacecraft is lost. Well, I was struck by the fact when I, when I just read the book, that this is just right out of today's headlines, uh, <laughs> the Russian Soyuz spacecraft came down rather unexpectedly, uh, in an unexpected manner a few weeks back, and really subjected the crew to a lot of extra force. Right. That was, a, a yes, a near-death experience for, the, for that crew, actually. And I don't know if, if the reason for that um, navigational error is, is uh, fully understood at this point. The, the space shuttle is going to go out of service pretty soon, and, and we'll be relying quite a lot on the uh, Russians to, sh to ferry people to and fro, as I understand it, until the, um, the new American uh, spacecraft is, um, or international spacecraft is uh, in service. So hopefully they won't have too many more of these... Um, experiences. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of the Russians, uh, one of the most ominous chapters in your book concerns this is this outbreak of anthrax in the old Soviet Union in 1979. It's a rather uh, horrifying but fascinating tale. Can you tell us what happened and why they were doing such deadly research in the first place? Yes. Well, this was um, a, a microbiology laboratory in the, in the city of Sverdlovsk, if I can pronounce that right. It's now called Ekaterinburg. Mm -hmm. It's in western Siberia. And uh, this laboratory was part of the Russian, the secret Russian germ warfare program that was going on, um, contrary actually to the international agreement they'd signed banning this kind of uh, activity. And what happened was that um, apparently a filter was left off the, one of the production facilities, a filter that was supposed to stop any of the anthrax organisms escaping from the manufacturing facility into the um, outside world. And so um, a small amount of, of anthrax did escape. Apparently it was a tiny amount, less than a gram, but it spread over a large area, and uh, I think about 60 or 70 people died, as well as quite a lot of uh, animals. And the interesting part of this, in a way, is not so much that this happened, but that the whole sequence of finding out how it happened, because the Russians tried to keep the whole thing secret, and they said that it was what actually happened was that this was a natural outbreak of anthrax among farm animals, and then some people got sick by eating the meat from these infected animals. Right. And it took a, quite a bit of uh, sort of detective work, particularly um, by a, a scientist at Harvard called Matt Maselson, who who actually eventually uh, figured out exactly what happened and. Uh, the story of the chapter in the book is really about how he and his colleagues uh, figured out the exact um, sequence of events there. Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing about that whole bioweapons issue and, and regarding, like, you know, that was a big ramp up to the war in Iraq talking about this. And, and this program has been, uh, well, I mean, Judith Miller wrote a book about it, uh, she of the weapons of mass destruction fame on germ warfare, and that had some questionable data in it. 
Well, we just don't know at this point, you know, whether any countries are actually actively pushing um, germ warfare programs or not. I mean, you know, the United States supposedly is, is dismantling all its, its operations and trying to destroy its stocks of uh, biological weapons, and same with the uh, USSR. Uh, Iraq apparently has done it already, um, you know, apparently did so before the invasion, actually. Um, what's happening in countries like Iran and so on, we really don't know. I, I enjoyed your chapter, too, on nuclear chemistry. Um, there's this idea out there that physicists might be able to find a very heavy element with an atomic number of 118, which is really off the yeah. charts. And um, and you had some interesting interesting story about how that was looked for and what happened. Right. Uh, this is the chapter on the subject of, of fraud in science. And uh, the particular example I took was concerned this um, nuclear chemist by the name of Viktor Ninov, who was working at Berkeley. And he and his colleagues reported uh, in 1999 that they had discovered a new or created a new chemical element, element 118, so an element much heavier than any element that had previously existed. And uh, they did that with the help of uh, the cyclotron at Berkeley. And uh, later, other labs were not able to, re to reproduce that result. And when the some of the Berkeley scientists went back and looked at their data, they found that uh, the the computer record of these discoveries had basically been faked, it had been forged, and apparently this had been done by one of the group, a guy, this guy called Viktor Ninov. And uh, why he had done this wasn't totally clear, because after all, you know, he basically ruined his own reputation. He was later fired from Berkeley. Uh, but interestingly enough, it later emerged that he'd also done something similar uh, at his previous job in Germany. When they went back and looked at that data, they found that the, f the first fake data was on a very interesting date. It was on the 11th of November at 11 minutes after 11 in the morning. And that particular time is the official beginning of the uh, what's called the, the fashing in Germany, which is a sort of practical joke season. So it looked like his first fake data was actually intended as a practical joke. <laughs> and then people didn't realize that. They just took it as being a serious uh, result. And he apparently went on from there and, and uh, continued to fake his data. We're speaking with author Simon LeVay about his book, When Science Goes Wrong, 12 Tales from the Dark Side of Discovery. And, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I just want to mention that I grew up with a periodic table that went up to element 103. And, you know, they, they've got new ones now that have all these new elements. And this is crazy to me because these elements are they're a handful of atoms for a few milliseconds in particle accelerators. These new atoms, these very heavy elements, are not very happy. They uh, <laughs> Basically, they uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of... Um, the protons in the um, in the nucleus uh, have so much positive charge that they're, they're, they're trying to break apart. You know, the electrostatic force is pushing them apart. And um, so they, they, their lifetimes tend to be extremely short. Yeah, I wish, I wish they'd go back to the old one with just stops at 103. It's good enough for right. most purposes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Still, there's a lot of you know, fame and fortune associated with the, the, creating these uh, super heavy elements. You get to have an element named after you. Well, yes, absolutely. That's uh, that's part of the game. I, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know, I know it's not in your book, but just as an aside, you're interested in. Uh, I know that uh, these accelerators, these new generation, they're talking about maybe producing some mini black holes. That does scare some people. Well, 
yes. This is the story of this, um, what's called the Large Hadron Collider that's going to come online in Switzerland this summer. And a couple of scientists, and I believe they were not actually physicists, uh, said that uh, this could create a, a miniature black hole that has a potential perhaps of uh, even swallowing the Earth. <laughs> And uh, a good deal of media attention was paid to that. I actually, well, of course, you know, I'm not a physicist. I'm a brain scientist, so I haven't, you know, myself been through the arithmetic to check this. But uh, my understanding is that uh, this is absolutely not going to happen by any remote kind of chance, and this is not something we should be worried about at all. But if it does, I'll add it it attached (laughs) to my book. For the record, my friend at the Stanford Linear Accelerator says we got particles coming in from space all the time with higher energies, not to worry. That's, that's absolutely true, yes. These, they're called um, ultra-high energy uh, cosmic rays, and um, they, have, uh, they, they are traveling at very nearly the speed of light, so they're enormously energetic. Well, Dr. DeVay, perhaps the greatest loss of life you talk about in your book it came from an engineering disaster, the catastrophically abrupt failure of the St. Francis Dam in 1928, which killed probably 500 people in Southern California. You have a very vivid chapter in the book about that failure. So how did that happen? Well, yeah, this is uh, close to where I live. I mean, you know, I live in Los Angeles, and this happened just 40 miles north of Los Angeles. It was the the worst uh, civil engineering disaster in the United States during the 20th century. And, yeah, it was an engineering disaster, but it was in a way founded in scientific error. Uh, First of all, uh, a geologist from Stanford by the name of John Branner, a famous uh, geologist, inspected the site before the dam was built uh, to see whether it was safe, and he said it was. But he failed to recognize that one of the walls of the canyon where the dam was going to be built was actually uh, the site of an ancient landslide and could give rise to more landslides in the future. So that was one serious error. And then another error was that the engineer who actually designed and built the dam, this was uh, William Mulholland, the famous water engineer in Los Angeles, uh, he failed to take account of uh, Archimedes' principle, which is something that most of us learn about in elementary school. And what this means in terms of dam construction is that if water from the reservoir gets under the dam, then it, its hydrostatic pressure will actually nullify some of the weight of the dam. And since the weight of the dam is what keeps the dam in place, that raises the risk that the reservoir water will simply push the dam over and cause it to collapse. And the combination of those two factors is actually what uh, caused the dam to collapse. I I noticed, too, that uh, your reconstruction of the the failure is, is actually not the most commonly accepted version of events. Well, no. After the dam collapsed, there was an official inquiry, and uh, the, the, the committee... Um, came to the conclusion that the collapse was caused by the fact that there was an earthquake fault running under the dam site and that uh, there was weak rock along the fault and this had been eroded by the reservoir water and caused a channel to form under the dam which had then caused the dam to collapse. There is a fault there and I've been there and I've checked that in fact the rock is rather weak in that area but in fact that was not the cause of the of, of the dam failure at all. It was um, much more recently figured out by a, a geologist um, at the University of Missouri that uh, the real cause of failure was the, um, the, the two factors that I just mentioned. Yeah. 
Yeah, you have another chapter titled The Ecstasy and the Agony. It was interesting that it documents um, how there's been some efforts to brand MDMA or ecstasy as a terribly dangerous drug, and it seems there's a lot of politics involved in that. Right. Now, I, that is the story of this chapter. I, I don't want to say that ecstasy is a safe drug to, for people to use. I don't think it is, actually. But this particular issue was whether ecstasy uh, destroys the dopamine system in the brain. Dopamine is an important neurotransmitter in the brain. And uh, a researcher at Johns Hopkins Medical School by the name of George Riccati published a paper in which he claimed to show in monkeys that even a small single dose of ecstasy, uh, an amount that a a human user might use in a single evening, uh, was enough to basically wipe out the dopamine system in in the brains of these monkeys. And this was politically relevant because at that same time, a few years ago, uh, Senator Joseph Biden was pushing what was called a Rave Act, which was a, a, a bill that was going to add very large penalties to people who put on raves, parties where ecstasy might be used. And that, Ricardo's research, which was published in Science, actually helped the passage of that bill and it became law, or, or another bill very like it became law. Only a year or so later, it emerged that uh, Riccardi had made a very um, sort of humorous blunder, if you like, in, in uh, conducting that experiment. He'd taken a, a bottle that he thought contained ecstasy, but in fact it contained another drug, uh, methamphetamine, or speed. This was a drug that was already known to damage the uh, dopamine system in the brain. So uh, when he went back and tried uh, what he knew was authentic ecstasy, he found that it did not have any effect on the dopamine system. So he had to retract the study, um, which didn't mean that the uh, the Rave Act was then rescinded or anything. <laughs> it's still law, actually. Yeah. Well, Dr. Levay, you, you are a neuroscientist. Uh, can we look to the future and, and, and what some breakthroughs people talk about, uh, things like brain surgery to cure Parkinson's, talking about dopamine and, and such? Uh, you see a bright future? I see a tremendously bright future in science, uh, including medical science and including uh, diseases like Parkinson's disease. Now, in this book, I do talk about a tragic case in which um, a man received um, an implant of fetal cells in his brain in an attempt to cure his Parkinson's disease. And that implant ended up killing him, unfortunately. There are other people who actually have been greatly helped by, by that kind of transplant. And there are many other treatments coming online now, including these implanted electrodes in the brain that um, offer tremendous uh, um, prospects of improvement in Parkinson's and several other conditions. So, uh, yeah, I think the, um, the prospects are very bright for a lot of these uh, degenerative disorders uh, eventually. But uh, these research experiments, these medical research experiments, have to be carefully overseen by human subjects committees to make sure that people don't get hurt in the process of discovery. Uh, Let's wrap up here with maybe some other interesting areas that maybe you didn't talk so much about in the book. Uh, You're interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There's some new technologies coming online. Uh, They're making some discoveries of new planets and even investigating their atmospheres and such. Uh, you, You see some breakthroughs there, maybe. Uh, it is a very exciting area. Yes, there's of course a large number of, uh, of, of of new planets being found orbiting around distant stars with various new technologies, 
and this uh, there's new telescopes coming online, radio telescopes that have a much greater potential for picking up messages from extraterrestrial civilizations uh, than has been possible up to now. Um, it's a real guessing game as to whether these extraterrestrial civilizations really exist or whether they are located near enough to, to, to Earth that we could hope to pick up their signals. But I very much admire the people who are conducting those searches. I think it's uh, worthwhile and uh, eventually probably will be rewarded. Your, your bio notes that you were the 1963 bicycle hill climbing champion of East <laughs> Anglia, described as a perfectly flat region of England. I, I'm guessing the story behind that involves a pub crawl and a lot of Guinness. Well, no, actually, I wasn't totally drunk at the time. <laughs> but um, it's just apparently that every region of England has to have its bicycle hill climb, <laughs> hill or no hill. And so they actually found some little rise that might have been up the side of a bridge or something. My winning time was 42 <laughs> seconds. And I won it by, basically by virtue of being the skinniest teenager in England at the time. <laughs> and, and one final clarification for those of us in Northern California and old, old enough to remember the antics of the... Uh, of Anton Zandor LaVey, no relation. <laughs> Anton LaVey, I, I, I must emphasize, uh, spelt his name differently from okay. mine. He was right. L-A-V-E-Y, and I'm <laughs> L-E-V-A-Y. Unfortunately, enough people make a mistake on that spelling <laughs> that you know, when you do Google searches, you tend to get a sort of blend of uh, the, the, the Satanist Anton LaVey and the, uh, and the scientist Simon LaVey. Yeah, we should point out for those who are too young that he called himself the uh, the pastor of the Church of Satan in San Francisco and was a fixture on local talk shows. He was a real character, and I think he was putting everybody on. Well, he, he added some color to, um, to that uh, scene in San Francisco uh, a couple of decades ago. <laughs> the book is When Science Goes Wrong, 12 Tales from the Dark Side of Discovery. We've been speaking with author Simon LeVay. We appreciate your talking with us and hope that we might uh, speak again. Thank you. Very pleased to be uh, talking with you. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Wait.